0: This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host Al and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, welcome back to the Golden Nuggets podcast. And today I'm talking to Damon Hughes. Hey Damien, how you doing, mate? You okay? I'm good, thanks, Al.
1: Thank you for the invitation to come and chat with you. I've really been looking forward to it. So thank you again.
0: And uh, your podcast, the High Performance Podcast, is is fantastic, mate. I've, I've been like, absolutely binged <laughs> listening to it today, so um, some really nice insight into that as well. But um, to, specifically um, today we're going to look at culture because that's something that I think um, when I watched you on a webinar with Neil Rowlings on PADSYS, it was something that I was really, really interested in um, yeah. because I think some places get it so right and then other places get it so wrong. And we're just sure. going to try and sort of unlock some of those secrets specifically around um, the work that you've done as well. So do you want to just tell the audience a bit about, you know, who you are and what you've been what you've doing and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, of course, yeah. So um,
0: it's
1: probably – so my name is Damien Hughes uh, and I do a few different jobs. Uh, one of them is – um, I'm a visiting Professor of Organisational Psychology and Change at the University in Manchester Metropolitan. Um, so my background is very much um, about high-performing cultures. How do you create them how, how do you build them to strong enough that they can cope with change? So the second job I do is I work as a consultant across a really wide range of organisations and industries, um, from education to business to elite sport working with leaders about how do they go about actually creating the culture and then the third job I do is I write and host the podcast so I've done a few books around these topics and then the high performance podcast that I do with Jay Comfrey we meet elite performers and talk to them around this same same issue.
0: Which has been your favorite one? What my favorite podcast? Well yeah leader that you've interviewed because we're going to talk about culture so you know things that they do.
1: Yeah um that's an unfair question because um, I start from the premise that everybody that's been good enough to come on has got something to teach us. Um, so they've all so they, so they've all been generous. But if I had to choose one, um, I'd choose, and there's a bit of a personal bias here, but uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, I'm really fortunate that I've known him for a long time and uh, I've done a little bit of work with him. So I called in a favour and asked him if he'd come on the podcast and he very generously agreed to do so. Which, given that he's in the middle of a what he's described as a cultural reboot at Manchester United, was really generous and in the insights that he offered as a United fan, as much as a friend of his, it was a it was a real treat to sit and chat with him.
0: Yeah, it was amazing to see how they've turned it around this season, isn't it? So, um
1: Yeah, I think it's a journey. Yeah, um I know that sounds a bit X Factor ish when we talk about that, but it is very much a journey that he's on and I think he's 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 at the start of it you know and I think we're very quick when we judge not just elite sport but in any in any domain we judge people remarkably quickly rather than ask are they making progress are they moving in the right direction and sometimes that takes that does take a while but we live in a world where patience levels are low and uh, the consequences of failure tend to be incredibly high which isn't always conducive to building really solid foundations of high performing cultures and so I definitely think he's, he's making progress.
0: Mm. And what was um, your experience like, mate, at school and, and growing up? Now, who, who influenced you? Ah, oh, right. Okay. okay. So, well, I'm from
1: uh, Manchester. i more specifically from North Manchester. Um, and I grew up in an area called Moston, which um, this isn't a badge of honour. Uh, but um, about 10 years ago, it was categorised as I think it was Europe's third poorest district. So give you an idea of the kind of social deprivation of the area. But I grew up there uh, and it's an incredibly tight, close-knit community and my dad was a boxing coach and he ran the boxing club uh, in the community for over 50 years. So that was very much my playground. So I feel incredibly fortunate that I grew up in an environment where... um, there was so much that is so rich around culture that one of the phrases people often talk about now is we do me-search rather than research when we try and understand our own biography. And I think as an adult, I can understand and articulate very much how powerful growing up within this environment was. So um there were a number of guys that came through this club that went on to achieve significant success, whether they won Olympic medals, they became world boxing champions. So guys from this community went on to become real beacons uh, of and and symbols of success. But the boxing club was a sanctuary for anybody that wanted to come in there, just a place to escape from some of the difficulties of life. And the the power of that culture within that boxing club has really taught me so many lessons that I've taken forward. It, it, just about respect, decency, hard work, discipline. There were so many things that... Um, There's a nice coda to it that three years ago, Manchester Council named a road in honour of my dad in the the area as a tribute to the work and the impact that he'd done. And we must have had about 300 people turn up um, to come and just pay tribute to my dad. I mean, my dad's still with us, but unfortunately he's very poorly now with dementia. But I would estimate that 90% of the people that turned up to pay tribute to him were people that had never set foot in a boxing ring but there were people that had come into the boxing club and came to pay tribute to the impact that the teachings of that culture and that environment had, had had on their own lives and careers subsequently. So that was very much my playground. I was learning there and then I was fortunate. I got a scholarship to a, a grammar school um, in Manchester. So I went there and um, I felt really blessed that uh, I was surrounded by teachers that that were... that went from a similar culture that were prepared to instill in you really good values and reinforce the principles of that. So that was very much my starting place, Al.
0: Whereabouts did you get? What was the school?
1: It's called Hume, Hume Grammar School. Mm. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, so when I first went there, I, I was very conscious that, um, I was the first one from my family, um, to be able to go to a school like that. And, uh, I felt like a bit of a fish out of water and I struggled for the first two years um, in terms of just assimilating. Um, And I ended up getting myself in a few scrapes. like um, So at one stage, uh, they were considering expelling me for fighting. Um, And what I was always feeling incredibly fortunate about, I mean, this is a theme that we mentioned the podcast. I'm interested when I ask anybody this is, your golden seed moment. And I'll be interested in your answer to this, Al, actually, is that Sigmund Freud says that for anybody to go on and and do anything in life, we all need a golden seed moment. And this is where it's an adult, and it can be a teacher, it can be a a father figure, it can be somebody in your local community that comes along and sees the seeds of what you are potentially could do. Long before you can see it yourself, and everybody that's been successful has one of these golden seed moments. So when I asked Kelly Holmes this question on the podcast, she spoke about her p e teacher, a lady called Miss Page, that saw that she was a disenchanted young girl in Kent, but she could run, and she told us she had the seeds to be good at it and From my point of view, I had a teacher called Bernard Counsel, that when I was in trouble for fighting, he came along and just sort of put his arm round me and said. I think you're better than that you don't need to be responding to sort of provocation or anything like that by uh, with your fists I think you can actually um, be a better person than that and you know this was an another guy similar to when I described my dad in that environment somebody that I feel really blessed um, did that for me you know and I still see him now he's I mean Mr. Council's uh, in his mid 80s and you know, I still go around once a year and take him out for a bite to eat, uh, just to say thank you um, to the impact that he had and the way that he shaped my life.
0: It's amazing that every, that that moment, isn't it, in terms of how it can shape and form your self belief and and uh, behaviours that correspond afterwards.
1: Hundred percent. I mean, you think like if you like, I'm, I'm a big fan of reading, and you read like any biography or autobiography, and you'll always find. There's a reference to that golden seed moment there. So like you read, like Muhammad Ali was the moment when his bike had been stolen and the policeman that ran his local boxing club took him under his wing and said, come on, channel your anger here. Or, you know, uh, Thomas Edison talks about, um, he was expelled from, uh, not Thomas Edison, Einstein was expelled from school and it was his mum that went to the school and told them that they weren't good enough to teach her kid because he felt that he had seeds of potential everybody has these golden seed moments or anybody that wants to go on and achieve anything in life certainly recognises it. I mean, mm. did you, Al?
0: Yeah. Uh, so it, what was your moment? For me, it happened a bit later, to be honest. It happened when I was probably at my most vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, when I was on my own in Australia, I sort of took a backpack over with a suit and some CVs. Didn't, yeah. know, any, didn't know anyone. Got chatting to a really nice girl on the plane and she yeah. basically just said, you sound like a really nice guy. I'll put you in contact with this other guy at a rugby club. He then basically had a meeting with me. And then they basically, the rugby club, literally just yeah. took me under the wing, signed me up, sorted me out with a, a labouring job in Temp and then sorted me out with a school job, a wow. car, accommodation. And I didn't they didn't even know me. I was like All on
1: the basis of you meeting that one lady. on this one funny. lady.
0: And I was like, This is mental that someone has literally doesn't know who I am and just gone, yep. I'm gonna help you. And I'm going to do it for selfless reasons, and and my, I had isn't the that best special, and and I was just like, no one had ever said that though. Do you know what I mean? Like my, but de- I had very supportive parents and all the rest of it. But um... see, but I think
1: that, mo- that those moments to me fascinate me because I think when we stop and think about it, we can all recognise that there was that one person or there was that one moment, It's like a sliding doors moment, in it where mm. where things could be different if somebody hadn't have bothered with that kind word or. Mm. Or somebody prepared to do you that favour. So, yeah, I, 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 what a fascinating story. So, where was you in Sydney when you did it?
0: Well, I was literally flying over on the plane, and yeah. then basically we got chatting on the plane, and then she just came to a, Sydney, though. Yeah, flying to Sydney, yeah. and then just basically got a number off her, and she said, well, I said, where should I go? And she said, well, if you don't really know where you're going to go, go to Manly because it's pretty nice there. And so I just booked <laughs> into a backpackers and stayed there for two weeks to get me, you know, feet on the ground. Put my, And then I, hand, I manually handed my CV in to all yeah. the schools in a suit, sweating because it was like 40 degrees C in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. But... um yeah, I could talk all day about that, but let's <laughs> we'll push you on. Um, in terms of like, we could talk about like, why is culture important? And we'll probably draw on some of those experiences later as well uh, for me. But in your opinion, why, why is it so important?
1: Well, first of all, it's worth articulating about what is culture. And culture is a really clearly defined sense of how people are expected to behave and conduct themselves when they're in a certain environment. So if we're then going to relate it, you go, well, can culture be a competitive advantage? And the answer is, well, of course it can. Because what you find is in in lots of places, there is a lot of ambiguity, whether this is ambiguity of expectation, whether it's ambiguity of what we're here to do, whether it's people being ambiguous about how you're expected to behave. Ambiguity is often the enemy of high-performing cultures. So culture, when you move it, High up the agenda, and you say, "Let's be really clear about what it is." It's effectively, it's it's that idea of everyone's clear about where we're going and how we're intending to get there. So, I think a better question for people to answer when we talk about this, al is to ask like, not so once we've established basically what culture is, say, well, what type of culture do you have? And when people say, "What do you mean by that?" and say, "Well, there's five types of culture that." traditionally emerge if this isn't taken seriously the first type of culture you get is like a star culture and these are the type of if we talk about schools in your case that these are the type of schools where you just go after getting the best teachers you throw you give it the best facilities you can you throw as much money at the school as possible and then you sit back and just wait for the results to uh, come in the flow with the star culture though is there's a great quote for, uh, from a guy called uh, Diego Lopez, who was the manager of Real Madrid Football Club, where he said the trouble with a culture like this is everyone wants to be the head waiter, but nobody wants to wash the dishes. So it's the idea that the less glamorous stuff isn't valued and respected enough, and that's where it'll often derail you at some stage. The second type of culture you get is an autocratic culture, and this is where, if you're in the school, you've just got a really charismatic um, head head teacher or senior management team, and it's their way or the highway. But the trouble is, what happens if they go rogue, or what happens when they leave? The culture falls off a cliff. The third type of culture is a bureaucratic culture, and this is where middle managers run the show. So it's about making decisions via policy, procedure, rules and regulations, and it's about sort of everything moves via consensus, and therefore it's slow and quite ponderous. The fourth type of culture is an engineering culture, and this is where you just recruit people because they're brilliant at their technical jobs. But then the fifth type of culture you get is a what we call a commitment culture. And a commitment culture goes back to that definition I said at the start. A commitment culture says, this is why we're here, and these are the clear behaviours that we're all signed up to. Now, what we know is that on all the research on this, commitment cultures will outperform any other... So it is a high-performing culture because in essence you've removed ambiguity from the place. And then if you listen to the etymology of that word commitment, commitment says you choose to be a part of it. And when we make a choice, so when you're signing up and say, I want to be a part of it, we know that people will outperform somebody that, that finds themselves there under duress or feels that they're doing you a favour. So this is a big lesson that I often say to leaders, especially in education. Nobody sleeps walking, nobody sleepwalks their way into a high performing culture. When you go into a high performing culture, most people can articulate why they're there and, and what they want to get out of it. In average to middle cultures, you'll get people moaning and complaining about it. High performing cultures weed that out a lot quicker.
0: I love the. Um one you did about Chris Hoy in the interview about the timing and trust. I thought that was fascinating. Uh,
1: yes. Right. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll explain that. that when we interviewed Chris Hoy, um, that he, so we were due to interview him in, uh, for the podcast. Then uh, we were meeting him in the Northern quarter of Manchester. Now I know you're a Manchester lad. <laughs> uh, so, so you'll appreciate <laughs> this, but some of your listeners might not. The Northern quarters, um, like the, um, uh, it's like a rabbit warren of back streets and things like that in Manchester. You get lots of independent bars and uh, shops and things like that. So it's like a real rabbit warren. And we booked a studio out in the northern quarter, but it was above, um, a shop, and it wasn't the easiest place to find. So we're there in the studio. We're giving Chris the details. We're due to meet him at ten o'clock, ten to ten. There's a knock on the door. We open it, and Chris Hoy stood there. So no, oh, great, thanks for coming, Chris. And we, as we setting up, we chatting. And I said, oh, I really appreciate you being uh, so early for this. And he was like, Well, why wouldn't it be? And I went, Sorry, what do you mean? And he went, Well, we'd arrange to meet for 10 o'clock, hadn't we? I went, Yeah. And he went, Well, why wouldn't it be here for 10 to 10? And I went, Oh, this is interesting. So did, <laughs> would you explain this? And we got into a conversation just based on that where he went, He said, Listen, if I, if we've, we've made a commitment to meet at 10 o'clock, he said, So that, I'm here at 10 to 10, he said, because if I turn up late, that would imply at some deep unconscious level that I think I'm more, my time's more important than yours. And by definition, that would imply that I think I'm more important than you are. And he went, so that's just not acceptable. Now, in that one anecdote, the the point I was making when we were talking off air about this was that in that one anecdote, what does that tell you about Chris Hoy? He go, he's respectful, he's down to earth, and he just does what he says. Now, when you see him, if you wanted somebody in your team that is gonna just dependable, respectful, and was gonna fit into the team, you'd pick Chris Hoy every time. Like, but th- this principle is really clear that what you're describing there are behaviours, key behaviours that define you. So again, well, I'll give you another example that talking to Ole Solska about Manchester United. Ten years ago he was the reserve team coach at Manchester United and I went in one day and me and I sat down and Alex Ferguson came to join us while we were um, in the canteen having a cup of tea. And the conversation got on. At the time there was a young centre forward uh, that had come through the academy called Danny Welbeck that they were sort of really pushing to go through. And I asked the question, why have you decided that Welbeck is is, is worth your investment of time? And they both gave a brilliant example. They said, the reason we've, we wouldn't have pushed for Danny Welbeck is, they said, he said, he's the only player that stays behind and helps, and helps the coaches collect the footballs after training. And I went, that's an interesting answer. What do you mean by that? And they went, well, said, but well, what does that tell you about Danny Welbeck? He's selfless. He cares about other people. And he's prepared to play his part. He doesn't expect that everybody to do things for him. And he said, because he always goes for the most difficult ball, the ball that's furthest away or hardest to get to. He said, so who wouldn't want a guy that demonstrates these behaviours when nobody's watching in your culture? So they're clear that in the culture of Manchester United, you've got to be a team player. And Danny Welbeck, going and collecting those balls, demonstrated his respect for team ethos, even though he might not have been doing it uh, for show. He was just doing it because that's the sort of person he was. And you find that in these cultures, or these individuals, they have these really clear, What I, I, so I describe it as trademark behaviours. These are non-negotiable behaviours, that when you show up, these are the behaviours that, that you can guarantee, I'm going to demonstrate. And that's as true for Chris Hoy now, eight years after he's retired, as it was when he was on the track. That's as true for Danny Welbeck, when he was a kid coming through at Manchester United, as it would be today he's somebody that is still respectful of, uh, uh, of other people.
0: It's interesting because the, the one with Dylan Hartley as well, he spoke about, he had an 85% win ratio as captain. And obviously, regardless of his sort of disciplinary side of things, he, he did say something that resonated quite strongly with me about, um, he knows what he knows, he knows what he doesn't know. And why not use the people he, who know better than him about uh, something yeah, yeah. in terms of a strength and conditioning coach? And I was like, that's exactly the type of person that you want in the team. Yeah. Is is he goes right? I need to know something. Who's the best at that? And I'm going to listen to them, regardless of who I am in my in the organisation.
1: Exactly. So he he used that when he was talking about Johnny Wilkinson, didn't he? Where he was saying that, like he said, it dawned on him once. Why don't I listen to this guy? This guy's won a World Cup. He's he's been at the peak of his career for so long. Why wouldn't you want to pick up and pick his brains? And I think that's a really key point that when in any culture there's another phrase that i talk about which is cultural architects these are the leaders they don't necessarily have the title of being leaders but they just demonstrate the behaviors that define what your culture is about and what you need to understand who are these cultural architects and encourage and nurture them and give them the confidence to keep behaving in that manner because if they carry credibility and respect what we know is people will start to follow their lead, like the Johnny Wilkinson example that Dylan Hartley said. Dylan Hartley might be bluff, belligerent, or give that impression of it, but he's also incredibly smart. And if he looks at what does Johnny Wilkinson do to sustain his career, how does Johnny Wilkinson conduct himself? You start to see some of those same characteristics being uh, manifesting themselves.
0: How I mean, how influential are cultural architects?
1: Massive. But every culture has them. So a cultural architect, it's a phrase that um, comes from a guy called Willy Raylo, he's a a Norwegian um, psychologist that's passed away now. But he says in any team or group, you need at least, to say you've got anything above 30 people in a group, you need at least five cultural architects. These are people that don't necessarily have the title, but people that just carry the weight. And what you know is that cultural architects, Become cultural architects on two criteria, social or technical. They're either really good at what they do, or they're charismatic, where people want to follow them and listen to them. If you've not got you, you will have them in a culture, but that you have to nurture them and develop them. Because what happens if you don't? You leave uh, that nature abhors a vacuum, and what you open the way to instead are cultural assassins. These are mm. people that undermine the culture, that have got something unpleasant to say about it, or just chip away. Okay at those that are trying to do something different. So you need them there unless you've got an aut- autocratic culture where you've just got senior management ruling the show anyway.
0: It's better to have a hole than an arsehole. Isn't that a quote of uh, Holly Tucker with that one? As well? <laughs> no, I thought it yeah, it's brilliant. It, it, I thought, it yeah, makes it a great
1: phrase. Sense. Yeah, better to have an hole than an arsehole. And <laughs> what, what, um, but what was really good for us is, and what's really pleasing for us with the podcast is, the amount of our guests that are listening to it and adopting some of the same principles. So, Mm. again, apologies for repeating the example. Ole Solskjaer gave that very quote to the media when he was asked about his new signings for this (laughs) summer. Did he say that? Yeah, if you Google it, (laughs) you'll find the quote that he said. I know the people I want, and they're the right people for this culture. Mm. But if I can't get them, I would rather have a hole than an arsehole in my squad. (laughs) That's so good. <laughs> so we were really chuffed when we saw him. Yeah. He went. Uh, so I texted him, and he went, "Yeah, yeah, I heard. <laughs> I Ollie Tucker say that one." I said, oh, I
0: I'll have a commission on that. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I think um, it's also interesting about different leaders as well, like like Pochettino, The he, that that podcast was the bizarre thing was about the arm of over Jake for when he first met him, for an uncomfortable period of time. <laughs> he said, like, yeah. it was over a minute. And, like, for someone that's British and sort of a bit more reserved and conservative, <laughs> Did he, say he, that? he got, yeah. yeah, he got awkward with it. And I was like, but this is his sort of spiritual nature coming through and that's his style. And he's sort of talking about feeling energy of someone. Well, he was, he was
1: great. He was, um so he invited us to his home. Now, I know that sounds like a throwaway remark, but... This is a guy that's at the peak of his career and yet he's open and warm enough to say, come into my family home. So we went along to it. Um, so we went to visit him and uh, he just made us so welcome. Like Jake's example of that. but it, So when we sort of explored it, again, like the Chris Hoy turning up 10 minutes early, you go in there and he's got his arm around you and he's sort of bringing you in and he's, you know, sit down, can I get you a drink? How are you doing? And he couldn't go out of his way to be a more hospitable uh, host, and um, in the interview, then we started asking him, and he went, "No, no, this is what I do." So he he defines everything success in his culture as a leader is defined on two criteria, positive energy, and uh, and the right attitude. So what he does is he says that as a as a coach when he when he was at Tottenham, he he had his uh um, he had a sofa positioned right uh, facing the entrance to the training ground, so the players had to walk past it and he said that he'd take a cup of Marte tea every morning and just sit on the sofa and wait for his players to come in. And then he would shake hands with them. And he said the moment that he shakes that hand is the moment he determines what energy they're bringing into training and what kind of attitude they're bringing. So we said to him, so what would you do if you experience negative energy or a negative attitude? He said, well, that's why I've got the sofa there. You sit on the sofa with me and I want to know why, what's happening for you. What's going on that means that you're going to negatively impact this environment? This environment today. What can we do to fix it? So, you know, there's a great saying when I talk to people about this about culture that you that what you ignore, you um, that you basically um, allow. So, the standard you walk past is the standard that you're allowing. So, if you let somebody come into your environment sulking or being negative or cynical and things like that and you don't address it you're permitting that to exist within your culture whereas if you're clear about it you're so you remove the ambiguity these are the two criteria that you're signing up to and then you challenge it whenever you experience anything alternative that's how you start that's how people start to understand i know what i'm signing up to here so that commitment culture becomes really powerful
0: it's funny i've got a funny analogy for that as well right so i'm wearing this gymshark t-shirt and i bought it one of my mates is like i used to play rugby with him it's like head of product marketing for gymshark not that i even bought it for that i just really like the shirt and you can't see anything right so obviously you know the listeners won't know that but i'm just scanning the video down and you won't be able to see anything i like it yeah you can't see it but underneath it it says you can go home now and you can only see it when you start sweating what a brilliant idea and i was like this is brilliant so that's my standard right so basically unless i'm sweating and i basically i've also shaven my chest anyway any at the moment so i, I, I yeah. sweat less so i'm gonna have to sweat i'm gonna have to work, work harder, harder yeah yeah to, to get to get that and that's when i go home so when i do exercise i've not if i've not got that on i, just, I don't stop
1: now i would refer to that then as a tripwire so when you know what you're looking for, the behaviours, you can start laying tripwires within your culture that then challenges people to think about their behaviours. So the example of Pochettino putting his um, sofa facing the entrance is a tripwire moment. So you players can't walk past it without being reminded that he's shaking your hand. That The handshake is another tripwire that says, what's your energy, what's your attitude? So mm. it just reminds you of it, so it gets you out of autopilot mode Unfortunately, so like when you go to the gym, that 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 wording that uh, bears out when you swear is a mm. tripwire that says that you're here to work hard. You're not here to pose in front of mirrors or mm. look how or admire how good you look. And you mm. do look good. It's about <laughs> <laughs> getting there and doing the work, do, uh, doing the hard work.
0: So this is brings on to my next question, and it's sort of ch- quite Very a cool. challenge, really, because. We live in, obviously, uh, well, I live in London, right? Metropolis, lots of different cultures. So I shake some people's hands that are from a Middle Eastern background. Now, bearing in mind, the Middle Eastern background, they certainly don't shake the same way for some of them than you would from a a European nature. And so that's the next question in terms of how do you integrate people from different cultures and how does that affect developing your culture?
1: Well, that's a really interesting one that I think we need to be sensitive to those different cultural norms. So I've worked in um, rugby a lot. So I'll give you an example there that uh, when you get some of the Pacific Island boys that come over to play in a rugby team, I've I've seen how that culture clash can cause issues because in Pacific Island culture, um, you don't make eye contact with the leader. And it's seen as a sign of respect to look at the floor when they're speaking. And yet within our culture, it's seen as a sign of respect to give eye contact to the leader. So I've experienced it where coaches have had that culture clash of thinking somebody's not listening to them. And the reality is they're paying respects in a different way. So again, you can be removing the ambiguity of that and just having that conversation then removes it. So you're not asking someone to behave uh, um, in a radically different way than, than what they experienced and they're known to do. So this isn't about being insensitive to those cultural differences, it's about appreciating them. But what this idea of trademark behaviours demands is, these are behaviours that people can sign up to themselves. So you might ask for enthusiasm, and you might define, well, what does enthusiasm mean? Or it might be respect, and then define, how are we going to greet each other? And it's about just, if you know that there's the likelihood of that clash, remove the ambiguity and you remove it by having that conversation and articulating this is how we're expected to behave. So a trademark behavior is something that everybody can understand what it is and then adhere to.
0: Mm. You see, it's interesting because it brings me on to the next point and it's about gender and about how gender and cultures um, are also affected in organizations in metropolises. So an example is in the NHS, there's a wide range of, of uh, women in leadership positions. And yeah. sometimes there are pe- men in cultures that see women for, you should be at home, at the kitchen, with the with the children, and that's what right. they've been brought up with. And what, yeah. uh, I suppose, so my wife works for the NHS, um, no. and interesting for her, she is in a leadership position, and she sometimes notices the silent um not misogyny in the sense that it's it's not quite as aggressive as that but it's sort of the the uh this the silent um awkward uh non-verbals that may be per- perceived as being slightly confrontational have you ever experienced wow. anything like that and have you, have you seen anything fantastic work from in terms of like women leaders who are doing, by the way, a fantastic job with this COVID. You know, if you're a woman prime minister, you've got a great track record at the moment in terms of cases. So they're obviously doing yeah, something yeah. right. You know, is there an argument to say that actually, I think I think you've got an economic argument for it with the FTSE 350 you mentioned on on something as well in terms of profitability. They were making 10% more than than the men on average. I think there was something definitely yeah, along the lines of...
1: Right, okay. I mean, I think the... You make it, the, the. I've been fortunate enough that I'd, I've worked within uh, all female environments. Um, so, um, I I did quite a lot of work a few years ago with uh, Tracy Neville when she took over the England Roses, the netball team, and it was my first experience of going in to predominantly like ninety eight percent female environment, and I remember Danny Kerry the England women's hockey coach had made a really good point to me when I asked for some advice. He said, um, and, and again, this is a generalisation, but he said, men need to be praised to feel that they belong. And he said what he'd learned in all female environments is women need to belong before you can praise them. So it's the idea of men like being singled out was his point, of you can say, you know, Al, you're doing a great job here with this podcast, and if there was other people in your team, if it was predominantly men his point was they'd accept that because they would see it as a fair comment whereas if we're in a in an all-female environment you couldn't really single anyone out before you'd praise the whole group for their effort was his point so the reason i mentioned that isn't to say whether that's right or wrong that was very much my experience of it but i think we need to be sensitive to any environment any new culture we go into regardless of uh, gender or race or the politics of it and I think the danger of it is when we go in and try to implement what we consider to be the right thing so I encourage anyone to take a step back from an environment like that and rather than go in telling people what should be and what are, and what shouldn't be the standards go and find out what are the standards already there so there's a really simple exercise I encourage people to do on this topic and I I, I describe the exercise as success leaves clues. So what I would say is if you're going into an environment that maybe is unfamiliar to you, whether this is because of the, the demographic, the makeup or just the industry, start by saying when you're good, why are you good? And start to understand what the standard is of high performance. So you, it's a great exercise to do for two reasons. One, who doesn't have an opinion on success? But secondly, it's an inclusive exercise where you're asking people to join in and give you evidence of what already exists. So you're not trying to create some blue sky thinking uh, idea of what could we be. You're starting by saying, what are you already when you're good? And the challenge is, how do we get more of these good moments to proliferate in our culture? So I think that helps you in some way avoid some of these uh differences or the or or the or the diversity challenges that you've just described because you're not going to in to try to tell people what should or shouldn't be the case whether you believe that as you say women shouldn't be in the workplace or people of a certain age shouldn't be there you're not going in with those kind of views you're going in to say let's just talk about when you're good why are you good
0: and let's build from that Mm. i think there's also um a topic, especially around multiple generations working with each other, because obviously like the experience of growing up, and I'm not sure what area what you quite were in, but I'm guessing similar to myself in terms of 70s, 80s, you sort of like, you know, you're around the era of being outside, didn't really have a computer until you're a lot older Smart smartphones weren't around. I had a Nokia Nokia 3210 with Snake, if you're asking, you know, at a very late age. I had a Pager, I had a Tamagotchi. It was very much limited with the amount of, te- you know, technology that we had. Whereas obviously now the smartphones, the social media, there's a lot more instant gratification, the way people connect and communicate, social apps, you know, it's, it's all changing. And I just, I worry that, you know, people at the top, that are making decisions about culture setting and how they want to behave in terms of a commitment culture and trying to create non-negotiable behaviors, which is, and, and align them. Is there a challenge to try and get buy-in? Cause like you said, like if you've lost the changing rooms, it doesn't matter how much, you know, right. And yeah, how, do you, get, how do you get, how do you get buy-in? So,
1: so if, again, if you view, if you one of those lenses, if you're just at the top of the organization and going, I know best, then I'm going to tell you what non-negotiables are. You've got an autocratic culture. So you've got a small cabal of autocrats deciding it's my way or the highway, which is fine. It's not a bad. It's not. There's no right or wrong in any of this. But you say, but what happens when you're not in the room? So Clive Woodward used to say that the challenge for you as a leader in a culture like that is, do you've got the same problem the Queen does? You think the world smells of fresh paint because everywhere you go it's all freshly painted. The challenge is when you've left the room, what's gone on there? So an autocratic culture of just demanding this is the standard is going gonna, is gonna to create um, pitfalls. Whereas if you're going in as a leader and saying, right, when we're good, why are we good? And inviting people into the conversation. Let's get examples. So it might be, if you're in a school and you go, right, who's the best teacher? Who's the teacher that seems to get most kids engaged? Who's the teacher that most kids want to spend time with? Who is the teacher that's delivering our best results? Start from a premise from there and then go and explore what are you doing? What are the standards of behaviour that are consistently done? How do you engage? How do you do this? And that's where you then start to go, right, let's extrapolate out from that, that it might be the personal touch is one of our non-negotiable behaviours because when we see this happening amongst our best teachers, this is where it works. So then that drives your recruitment. Are you recruiting teachers that adhere and recognise that these are behaviours? Are you promoting the teachers that are demonstrating these behaviours? Are you exiting the members of staff that are not doing this? These behaviours become central then to every decision that you subsequently go on to make.
0: And is there is there a room for like trying to um develop leaders for, for, you know, in terms of children though as well? Like I've got like a player led environment in sport, but yeah. is there any other ways at all?
1: So, again, you can still do this in terms of leadership development with children. Um, can be done at an early age. So when people say, "Is it are they are they born or 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 made?" The answer is well, both. It's not either or; it's a both and. You can have some kids that have been conditioned to to be confident, and they've and they've come from an environment where that confidence has been rewarded and nurtured, but. We can, we and some might just have traits that mean that they're more extrovert in the way that uh, they might choose to express themselves. So, again, it's a both and. Can you create an environment to allow people to feel that they can speak up and develop? Well, the answer is yes, and there's plenty of evidence out there about how it's happening. So, it's about, you know, a really simple way is spend twice as long reviewing performance that you do setting standards. Another way is that the, Jose Mourinho um almost um wrote the guidebook for this. It's a when he does coaching, he does it on a principle called guided discovery, which is basically posing questions to his audience and then letting them answer it themselves. And you almost guide them to the answer, but they're the ones that have to come up with it. So there's lots of techniques that are out there that there's people a lot better qualified than me to answer what they are. But the point is yeah we can create environments where young people can start to lead and take the initiative.
0: Mm. Now, I, I love um, like all of the summaries that you had as well to sort of, sort of encompass all of it as well. So if if the, I think it was have an anchor point, so your why, uh, take responsibility and then surround yourself with people that will benefit you as well, who will push you forwards. I thought that was like my three take-homes from all of the series. And I think oh, a lot brilliant. of them were saying Thank the you. same th- – they were saying the same things similar to like Robin Van Persie's kid about, you know, him basically blame, oh, you know, I love you know, that, that one.
1: Went, well, that went viral, that, that clip, uh, where it's been viewed over a million times. So when, it was, when we sat down with him, I, I nudged Jake and I said to him, I said, we've got gold dust there. Because <laughs> <laughs> Robin said, he was talking about um, this principle and, and, he went, and he went, do you mind if I tell you a conversation I had with my 14-year-old son last week? And we were like, yeah, sure, go for it. And then he started telling us where he said his son plays for um, Feyenoord in Rotterdam. Their youth team is only 14 and they played in a cup final and his son had not come off the bench as a substitute. And he said, and in the car on the way home, he said his son's complaining about the coach, the other players, the opposition, the the conditions. And Van Persie said to him, he said, "He pulled my car into the lay-by and I said to him, son, we need to have a chat. He was like, what do you mean? And he went, he said, I've heard you blame all those other people, he said, and I've, there's one person I've not heard you make any reference to yet, yourself. And he went, no, I'm your dad, he said, and I'm, I'm going to love you regardless of, of, of what you say or do. He said, but I've got to tell you, you sound like a loser. <laughs> he said, because losers constantly are pointing the finger at others and don't take any accountability themselves. And he went, now, if you choose to be a loser and that's the route you want to go down, he said, I'll still love you because that's, mm-hmm. I'm your dad. He said, but if you want to be a winner, let's start being accountable, looking at yourself, taking responsibility, and i love you as well. Mm. And he said, but this is your choice as to route the route you want to go down. And he went into a lot more detail than I'm giving you, but the point is that, he said, my son took the lesson on board and has subsequently gone on and changed the way that he responds to some of these setbacks. But the reason I thought it was gold dust is because... Like, I know you're a dad as well as I am, and Mm. there's, you know, any parent listening to it, you'll be thinking, we've all faced those challenges ourselves, or, you know, we know that we will face them with our children. And one, it was a bit grounding to hear that somebody like Robin Ron Percy is having the same challenges that we are. But secondly, (laughs) the fact that he, that this is a guy that can speak with real power and eloquence given his own status and achievements, the fact that he can then say, this is, What you need to do, maybe is a different voice that our children would be prepared to listen to it more than what they would do, than just listening to us
0: saying it. It's interesting about like letting kids be kids as well. And like, there's, there's, uh, I mean, it's also, you know, you've got to obviously create an environment where they feel comfortable and push them and allow them to, uh, you know, show what their capability is. So like, I think Ant Middleton said that and Tom Daly as well about, you know, understanding capability and commitment, but having commitment, like seeing things through, it's not saying like, you know, oh, I'm just going to let him do whatever. It's like, if he's committed to it, he's committed to it. And actually like, until he's thrown in the, sh- the deep end, he ain't going to be able to know how to swim in the deep end, you know? And I think that was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Like we were sat there before we interviewed Aunt Middleton. Like I'd, i because obviously doing the research and you read up. I'd, I'd read things that he'd said like, uh, um, killing a man is the closest you can feel to God or something like that. And you're thinking, we're just about to sit out in a room with this guy that, <laughs> that talks about violence uh, in such a, such a normal manner, and but then the. As we were sort of preparing for this, I'm thinking, right, how, how's this going to go? And then I came across <laughs> an interview he'd done on TV where he'd spoken about tough love with his kids, where I think he'd, his three-year-old daughter was scared of getting in the swimming pool so he threw her in. <laughs> and he's like, well, how's she going to learn otherwise? And I, th- and I think he got a lot of stick for it from what yeah. I could gather in terms of social media. So it was like, let's ask him about this. And the point he was making then, like, beyond the sort of sensational headlines that sound terrible, was actually, the point he was making was, your body will sometimes create fear responses that force you to almost feel like you've got to run away. But actually mm. learning to recognise what what those responses are telling you, they're actually mm. reframe them to say, they're preparing you, they're asking you, have you prepared thoroughly? So he talked to us about an example with his son, who um, was doing kickboxing, and uh, he ended up crying and telling his dad he didn't want to kick. Uh, he didn't want to do kickboxing because he felt nervous and he had that sick feeling in his stomach. And what he explained to us in more detail was how he'd sat his son down and almost got him to articulate what those feelings were. Like his heart was racing, his breathing was shallow, he felt clammy and sweaty, and he had that knot in his stomach. And he was saying these are all like signs that your body's releasing chemicals to get you primed to actually go in and confront this. And now we need to control these emotions to be able to go and execute what you've been practicing. So it was a lot more subtle than what the media headlines would have you be convinced that this is a psycho sort of throwing his children (laughs) to the wolves. It wasn't. (laughs) It was very much around trying to teach them emotional control, which all kids need to have it as part of their toolkit as they go into adulthood this emotional intelligence is uh, is essential.
0: I mean, I literally, I reckon I could talk all night um, about yeah. loads of things with role models and, you know, parental advice and help and all the rest of it. But um, if you could sort of summarise like with some golden nuggets now, um, yeah. and give as many as you want uh, within reason. <laughs> uh, I, I, often, I I said to someone like once, oh, can you give me three golden nuggets? And they're like, I can't do three. And I was like... All right, just any then. <laughs> he rattled off yeah. about six or seven. I was <laughs> like, "All right." <laughs> and, then, and then I said, "Oh, can you give one golden nugget?" And he goes, "No, I can't give one. I can only give three." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> so uh, yeah, any golden, golden nugget.
1: Yeah. Um, all right, I'll give you. I'll give you one. Be kind. And I know this is like a bit of a social media uh, sort of throwaway remark about being kind. What I mean by that is, I think be kind to yourself. And then, by definition, you can then have the capacity to be kind to others. So accept that, you know what, we're all going to make mistakes, we're going to cock up, we're going to get things wrong, With progress isn't always going to be as fast as we expect and things like that. And I think we live in a world where, we, where social media encourages us to or see outcomes. You see everybody looking at their best, you see everyone looking happy, you see everyone being successful. And it doesn't teach us to accept that progress is slow. Progress happens at our own pace. And I think when we can start being kind to ourselves and not beating ourselves up for not being as rich, as handsome, as famous as what we believe we should be in the outcome, I think that then gives us a capacity, like say, to be empathetic and understanding and kind to others on their journey as well. So... Be kind is not just a throwaway post, uh, hashtag that you put on social media. I think it's a genuine way of living our lives that, that that can be incredibly valuable to us.
0: Yeah, I love being kind. It's pretty much one of our values at school, so um, it's interesting to get that take on it as well.
1: Yeah, brilliant. I think it's one of them that it sounds, it sounds soft in terms of – it sounds a soft skill, but I think it – it, it underpins the hard the hard stuff of performance, that, uh, of having that, that kind of uh, trademark behavior, that value that you describe. Another one I'd say is, um, again, surround yourself with good people and remove those that you don't feel share the same value set that you do. You know, life is too short to end up arguing with people that have just got a different value set. Doesn't mean yours is right and theirs is wrong or vice versa. It just means they're different. And if people are not, um people don't have to change their values set or don't have to challenge or engage in that kind of, of um of, of self-analysis. So if you find yourself in the company of people that don't share similar values about, uh, that you do, there's no obligation to stay in their company either. Mm. You know, I think this has been a big thing that. We're talking about the podcasts that we've learned along the way. Like, uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the early stages of the journey. So we interviewed Rio Ferdinand and what had intrigued me was, I know he speaks about growing up on an estate in Peckham in South London that was tough and was pretty unforgiving. But he went to ballet school for four years while he was on that estate. And I was interested in about what did his peer group think of it? And he said, you know what, the honest answer is he said, people laughed at me for a long time. He said, and eventually when I overcame that embarrassment of being laughed at, I realized those people weren't going to come with me on any journey. Hmm. The ones that actually just quietly encouraged me and and like he said, the ones that went, you just go and do it, good luck to you, Hmm. were the ones that actually shared similar values of understanding and decency and, and had ambition. So that's just, it's been a big theme for a lot of people about just surround yourself with people that share similar values. Not think the same way but have the same value set is a big one. And then the final one, if you're going to do three years, um, don't underestimate the value of courage. Because courage is one of these things that it's not courage about being tough or being uh, brazen. Courage is just that quiet quality that says, you know what? I'm going to actually give this a go. I'm going to try it. I'm going to listen. I'm going to do something different. And, before anybody can do anything different, whether it's a journey to high performance, change of culture, whether they're going to do the best in a particular subject, courage will always precede it. And I think that's something to be recognised and nurtured and developed and spoken about, uh, can be incredibly valuable.
0: Hmm. Well, mate, thanks so much for coming on the pod. It's, it's been fascinating and, um, it's just so easy to talk to, mate. It's That's the, one of my key work-ons is to try and create that environment where people are comfortable. And you just, you're just just so easy to talk to. It's great, mate, when I get oh, someone well, like that. i the
1: kind. Thank you.
0: And um, I just wanted to say thank you also to my guy who does all my post-production, a guy called Louis. He spends hours sort of making sure that it's really great for me each week. And um, I really appreciate all the work he does. And also Gabriel, the uh, the owner of the company, to give me this opportunity to do it. So, yeah. Um, Thought I'd finish with some kind words and and say thanks very much as well, mate. So, well, yeah, no,
1: I think that was fantastic. So thank you to to Louis and Gabriel as well, but uh, above all, thank you to you and thank you to your listeners for uh, for tuning in this far into the discussion, so <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers, Al.